This morning, our scripture reading is from John 19, 1 through 16. If you're using the Black Pew Bible, it will be on page 905. John 19, 1 through 16. Then Pilate took Jesus and flogged him. And the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and arrayed him in a purple robe. They came up to him saying, Hail, King of the Jews, and struck him with their hands. Pilate went out again and said to them, See, I am bringing him out to you that you may know that I find no guilt in him. So Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. Pilate said to them, Behold the man. When the chief priests and the officers saw him, they cried out, Crucify him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and crucify him, for I find no guilt in him. The Jews answered him, We have a law, and according to that law he ought to die, because he has made himself the Son of God. When Pilate heard this statement, he was even more afraid. He entered his headquarters again and said to Jesus, Where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. So Pilate said to him, You will not speak to me? Do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? Jesus answered him, You would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given you from above. Therefore, he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. From then on, Pilate sought to release him, but the Jews cried out, If you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. So when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judgment seat at a place called the Stone Pavement in an Aramaic Gabbatha. Now it was the day of preparation of the Passover. It was about the sixth hour. He said to the Jews, Behold your king. They cried out, Away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, Shall I crucify your king? The chief priest answered, we have no king but Caesar. So he delivered him over to them to be crucified. This is the word of the Lord. So before any of that candy is collected and eaten, before you're dipping into that bucket for the Snickers and the Butterfingers after your kids are in bed, before you gain the fall 15 as a result of Halloween, before all that, you have to pick the costume. This afternoon, maybe, uh, and then later this week too, many of you and your kids will be donning costumes, and the whole goal will be to make you look like something you aren't. No one's going to mistake your three-year-old for Iron Man. They're just disguises. But in our text this morning, Jesus is forced, or is he, to put on a disguise, a costume. The Roman soldiers put Jesus into this costume that we see described there in verse 2. You can read it with me. And the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns, and they put it on his head and arrayed him in a purple uh, robe. Matthew and Mark, uh, other gospel writers, add that they gave Jesus a fake scepter only to rip it out of his hands and hit him on the head and the face with it. But there's an ironic catch here. It's nearly imperceptible on a first reading, especially if you're not super familiar with this story. This is actually the costume that wasn't. Rome thought it was a great disguise, a great costume. Pilate picked it. The jeering crowd agreed. It even heightened their frantic energy, crescendoing into a crowd-wide chant of, Crucify! 
crucify. You see that in verse 6. And the subtext here is that what these men are doing to Jesus by dressing up Jesus is to, uh, in order to mock Jesus is actually the truth about Jesus. This is no costume. John is ironically communicating to us. Jesus really is the king, the crown, the robe, the scepter, all pieces of a costume, but of a costume that wasn't actually a costume. After clothing Jesus with this costume, the Roman soldiers nearby begin to mock him. They say, hail, king of the Jews. And this is rich, rich irony here in the text. They start pummeling his face with their fists and with their palms. And now Pilate brings him back out to show the Jews waiting outside of this fortress. And I've got a picture here. It's a really famous picture. It's called the Ecce Homo. In Latin, that means behold the man, which is the phrase that Pilate uses to announce Jesus to the crowd. A Swiss artist, Antonio Cesare, painted this many, many years ago. Um, but I just thought it would help, be a helpful maybe depiction of what you can picture in your heads as to what's going on here. You can see Pilate there um, leaning out over the, the banister talking to the crowd. You can see Pilate's wife just behind um, over on this side, kind of not facing the whole, uh, the whole scene because she is a little bit nervous about what's going on here. Her handmaiden, try, handmaiden trying to comfort her by putting her hand on her arm. You can see the crowds down in the streets. You can see uh, some of the priests up in the top roof of the building out in the, in the background trying to sort of stoke the fires of the crowd. Uh, to get them all excited about what was going on, to stir up the contention. And so Pilate walks out here in verses 5 and 6, and then Jesus follows him. And Pilate motions towards Jesus and shouts to the crowd. He says, behold the man. In other words, here he is, this man that you're so threatened by. Look what I've done to him. Can't we be done with this little charade now? Can't the game be over? What do you think the crowd saw in that moment when Jesus was debuted to them? Remember, it had been a couple of minutes since, or a couple of hours probably since they saw him. What did they see when Jesus shuffled out there? Well, besides the costume, they would have witnessed a pretty disturbing scene. Look at verse 1. Before the crowd sees Jesus again, Pilate flogs him. Maybe you're not familiar with the term flog. But there were three forms of Roman flogging that each got progressively more ruthless and more brutal. In this case here, Jesus received the lightest form of flogging. And I'll explain why in just a minute. But the less severe of these three forms of flogging was called fustigatio. Fustigatio was reserved for relatively light offenses. But we mentioned last week that Pilate couldn't find any fault in Jesus at all. He didn't want to crucify him. No part of, Pilate wanted no part of this. But he realizes that there are some political implications at play here because of the growing crowd outside of his quarters. So something had to be done in order to satiate the crowd, else he was going to have a riot on his hands. So he gets a couple of his cronies to rough up Jesus a little bit with a mild beating. And for uh, a victim who, like Jesus, was not a Roman citizen, the favorite instrument of torture for these floggings was this whip that would have been fitted with pieces of bone and lead and other sharp materials. 
And so Jesus is flogged, mostly as a way to just appease the crowd and perhaps to teach Jesus a, Jesus a little lesson too. Stop being such a troublemaker, Jesus. That's what Pilate thought in his mind anyway. So Jesus' back begins to bleed. On his bloody back, they place that soldier's cloak, that purple robe to give him the picture of prestige. They smash a handmade crown of thorns onto his head, probably twisted together from long spikes of a date palm branch, maybe looking something a little bit like this. And all this happens in Pilate's headquarters. Meanwhile, the growing and rabid crowd awaits Pilate's decision. They haven't seen Jesus since he entered the fortress. So Pilate steps out onto that portico to deliver his verdict. Will it be good or bad? And then dramatically, he unveils Jesus, beaten, bruised, swollen, in a costume. The drama is so thick. Jesus looks way different than the last time the crowd saw him. He went in looking normal, unbeaten, and not in this costume. Surely this would be enough to settle the crowd down, Pilate thought. When Pilate escorts Jesus back outside, his sole intention was to show the crowd this beaten, submissive, broken Jesus, bearing the marks of legit punishment, and so by grant his release. That's what Pilate ultimately wanted out of this. Verse 4, you can see, I beat him, even though he's innocent, but the crowd wants more. Kill him! Crucify him! Pilate's getting nervous again. It was one thing to have a little fun with this guy, but to kill him for nothing? Rome would not look favorably upon this. This would not reflect well on him if this escalated into a riot especially because there were so many in the city that were still taken with Jesus. Obviously, we've, we've read a lot recently of how there are so many who are against Jesus, but there weren't only people against Jesus. So killing him would have stirred something up, and, and, and Pilate is getting nervous. So after Pilate parades Jesus outside, Matthew records for us, another gospel writer, that Pilate, Pilate actually washes his hands as a symbolic distancing himself from Jesus' un just punishment. But again, the crowd doesn't give one flip about Pilate's political aspirations. They don't care. They want blood. They want Jesus dead. And they claim there in verse 7 that Jesus deserves to die because he broke their law. He made himself the son of God. Well, this totally unnerves Pilate. Verse 8 says, if you look at it there, he says he was even more afraid than before. What is that then before talking about? We're earlier in the morning, way early in the morning, when Pilate was rolling out of bed to deal with this whole mess. Pilate's wife had told him about a dream that she had that night about Jesus. You can read this in the other Gospels. And, uh, and she warned him not to have anything to do with this Jesus character. So while I don't think Pilate in this moment possessed any kind of real spiritual insight he probably was highly superstitious in that culture, and the idea in that, that in some way gods could appear in the world, small g gods could appear in the world, would not have been foreign to him. So the reality that Jesus claimed to be God's son was beginning to weigh on him. Like something in the back of his mind was saying, uh, maybe you ought to check in on, on this. 
if he could find no fault in this man, which he couldn't, then why were the people so intent on killing him? It's a question he couldn't answer. It's unsettling to him. So he turns to head back into his headquarters again, and he brings Jesus with him, verse 9. And so once I get in there, he asks Jesus, hey Jesus, where are you from? I don't think this is about birthplace here. I think, I think Pilate is after something deeper, more fundamental. Why is my wife having dreams about you? Why are you so cryptic in the way that you speak to me? Why do these people want to kill you without cause? Something's up, and I want to know what it is. Where are you from, Jesus? Jesus doesn't answer. He's controlling the room with his silence. Pilate is frustrated in verse 10. He says, don't you know that I'm trying to help you here, dude? I'm, I'm kind of in your corner here. I have the power to release you or to brutally kill you. And now's when you're going to clam up? Verse 10, so Pilate said to him, do you not know that I have the authority to release you and the authority to crucify you? Well, when, when Pilate says this, Jesus does respond. He's not going to let this claim slide. Pilate's got this all twisted. So he says, look, I'm, I'm not here because you have me here, Pilate. Don't get it twisted. I'm here because I'm here. And because this is where the Father has me. This has nothing to do with you, bro. He says in verse 11, you would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given to you from above. So Pilate, obviously, he thinks he's in control here. And Jesus says, not so fast, my friend. Well, this raises questions. It should raise questions in us, the reader, about who's actually in charge of this scene. And so it leads us to our first of two observations today. We see Jesus' kingship displayed through ironic control. Jesus' kingship displayed through ironic control. And like we've mentioned a couple times in the last week, John is a straight-up genius when it comes to storytelling through irony. And I think we see it again today. Jesus was in control of his costume. When Jesus allowed that robe to clothe his back and those thorns to crown his head and that scepter to be thrust into his hand, he wasn't playing dress-up. He was laying claim to a throne that only he could occupy. And the only throne that could ever wield the right and the power to free us from the penalty of our sin. So this is not the tragedy that we think. This is not a moment of panic. This is history's game, set, match. At the coffee table in my house, this is like saying uno with the draw four in your hand. You got this. You got to sort of go back in your mind's eye and encounter this story for the first time. And if you read between the lines, you'll see Jesus on the winning side and not Pilate, not the Jews, but Jesus. His opponent is death. His tool is the cross and his victory is sure. There's something hopeful here that we don't see at first glance. And this is true for each and every sad event that you go through because God uses this ultimate injustice, the cross is the ultimate injustice 
the perfect man being crucified. God uses this ultimate injustice for the greatest good. The greatest travesty of all time is transformed into the greatest good of all time. So don't you think then, Christian, that he can use smaller hardships to bring about his good and sovereign plans in your life? He can, he does, he will. So Pilate's like, don't you know how powerful I am, Jesus? And Jesus' response demonstrates that there is a world of difference between privilege and power. Pilate had been given the privilege of authority, but he didn't truly have any power in this scene, did he? At least not in the absolute sense. True power is the only power that can exert absolute control. And the irony here is that Pilate, allegedly the most powerful figure in this story, is trying to use his power to free Jesus, and it just won't work. Right here, we do find Jesus exerting absolute power and absolute control, ironically, by apparently, at least on the surface, relinquishing control by laying down his life. There was only one free man in the room, and it was Jesus. He was the only one doing what he wanted. Pilate wanted to release Jesus in the worst way, but something was hindering him. Someone was hindering him. He may have had the privilege of authority in that moment, but he does not possess the power from above, as Jesus describes it there in verse 11. Jesus could give Pilate exactly what he needs to free him. It was in Jesus' power to do so, and he doesn't do it. Pilate is held hostage, even as the man in front of him is held hostage. Pilate is held hostage by the all-powerful God man who is wielding his power. Not to be released and saved from pain, but to stand condemned and suffer our pain. This is all because Jesus wasn't playing dress-up. He was claiming his true and rightful crown. His crown was true, his robe divine, and his scepter was all-powerful, even though on the surface it doesn't look that way. I think this is something that we all need to digest a little bit more consistently as we engage with the brokenness in our life. Life is almost never as it seems on the surface. Jesus was apparently beaten, not just physically, but spiritually, it seemed. Swollen, bloody, weak. And yet from this position of weakness, he showed the greater power. The power to stay the hardest course in history for the good of his people. Christ was not caught up on the tide of history and swept unwillingly over the waterfall of death. It didn't look like it in the moment, but Jesus was staying his course. In John 10, Jesus had said, no one can take my life from me. No one. Jesus isn't being taken here. He's stepping up into his death. As violent as these hours were, they were not hours of tragedy, but hours of victory. This is not the hour of darkness. It is the hour of glory. And Jesus is no victim here. He's a king assuming his throne, transforming death to a mere transition from this life 
to the next. He was transforming death. In Pilate's bloody, darkened fortress, Jesus' regal glory cannot be suppressed. He's sitting on his throne. But Pilate, man, poor Pilate, the man who had his mind set on the things of this earth was being tossed about helplessly like a little twig on a raging tide. He had no control here. His regal, his regal outfit was the actual costume in the room. He's the one who, though he looked the part of the powerful one, was in no control at all. His kingly outfit was a costume. There is something that we all need to remember. Like that old hymn says, though the wrong seems often so strong, God is the ruler yet. Our president, China's dictator, Al-Qaeda's lead terrorists, they only think they're in charge. They're just wearing costumes. In the end, we'll all see that Jesus is the true king. But we'd all do well to preach this to ourselves as we are on the brink of another election. No matter who is elected the next president, Jesus sits on the throne, unrivaled, unflappable, uncostumed, and full of love for his people. Well, Pilate is proof that the one who fixes his mind on earthly things is not free. You're held hostage by that. In ancient Rome, you didn't get into Pilate's role without being dead set on success, without being seduced by the call of being somebody. And you see, this becomes his downfall here. It seems to me, at least just on a cursory reading of this, that Pilate was not too far from investigating the claims of Jesus here. It seems like there's something going on in the back of his mind. Maybe even on the cusp of believing for himself. He knew that there's something different about Jesus, but instead of digging in with curiosity, the political pressure finally got to him in verses 12 and 13 there. Because the Jewish leaders, they have one more trick up their sleeve. One more card left to play. One more bit of leverage left to wield to secure the death of Jesus. And then one simple sentence turns Pilate into silly putty in their hands. If you let this man go, you are no friend of Caesar, they say. See, these Jews knew that the current emperor Tiberius also called Caesar, had a reputation for eliminating enemies very swiftly. History tells us that he had men killed for merely criticizing him. And so this is what Pilate is up against. This is Pilate's boss. And so with the God-man on the stand, we see his fate, we see Jesus' fate resting on the razor's edge of political manipulation. Pilate wanted power. The people had leverage. Who's going to win? Without the power, Pilate felt like he was nothing. So Pilate gives in. He succumbs to the pressure to maintain the peace and gain a little bit of political currency. The fear of man has made many people leave Jesus. We see it all the time in our modern day. Like Pilate, we forsake the pain of now for the glory of now. But that's upside down, Trinity, completely upside down. 
God would have you know that the pain of rejection now is nothing in comparison with the glory that is to come. Don't get this twisted. Don't flip it upside down. If you're beginning to blush about who God is and love what God hates, you're on Pilate's dangerous path. You're playing with fire. In this moment, I just want to remind you, remind all of us, who's wearing the costume in this scene and whose costume is the real thing. Jesus is king, y'all. His death was real. His resurrection was real. And that should change us in real life. We should all look to Jesus' response here when the accusations came. There was not one ounce of the fear of man in the man Christ Jesus. He was filled to the brim with the fear of God. There was no room left in his cup for the fear of man. Oh, that this would be our story, Trinity. Instead of being embarrassed by our Savior, to be able to celebrate him. Do you know what it feels like to have something untrue said about you? It kind of hurts, doesn't it? You want to clear your name, don't you? Maybe a coworker or a family member twisted the truth about you and word leaked out and you were devastated or maybe you're just straight up angry. Whatever it was that happened to you couldn't quite relate to what Jesus is going through here. I mean, Jesus is getting torched having never done anything wrong. And yet, he's being accused for all kinds of stuff. Some mentioned here and some mentioned in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. The accusations are coming uh, aplenty. Even if your friend or family member twisted the truth about you, it wasn't quite true, I bet there was probably at least a grain of truth in what they said about you. Not with Jesus, though. He who knew no sin became sin for us. What do you think it was in that moment that sustained Jesus? What anchored his feet to the floor? What kept his mouth shut when he could have defended himself? When the insults were flying, when people were mockingly shouting, King of the Jews! He had to be thinking, you guys have no idea. What sustained him, though? What kept him from jumping up and saying, Listen to me, guys, I'm not what you think I am. I'm far better but I'm not what you're saying I am. What kept Jesus from overvaluing the approval of those powerful people? It's the same thing that will keep us from overvaluing the opinions of friends or family or of powerful people. It's the same thing that will free us from the bondage of having to have people value us. So saying or doing or acting in certain ways that secure their favor of us. What sustained Jesus in those moments was his father's love for him, his father's affection for him. He knew he was right where the father wanted, and so his father's affection sustained him. We see what makes Pilate tick here in this text. Being accepted by the crowds, he bends to the pressure. Maybe that's what makes you tick. But we see what sustains Jesus here, too his acceptance with the Father. Jesus was able to sustain the lies, the insults, because he wasn't beholden to their affection. He couldn't care less whether they liked him or not. Instead, he knew that he was flourishing in the Father's affection. God loved him. I wonder if God's love for you is enough for you. Sometimes it's not enough for me, if I'm honest. 
What will sustain you in moments when others accuse you or mock you or even when Satan himself begins to accuse you? What will keep your feet secure? The Father's love. And here's, here's the good news. The Father's love, his affection for you, isn't dependent upon you. God's affection for you doesn't hinge on your performance. It hinges on Jesus' performance. And so you can always live in the Father's affection. Don't overvalue the world. Value the Father's affection. But Jesus isn't just exerting control over the narrative here, over his crucifixion. It's even better than that. Jesus was in control of the clock. He's in control of his costume, and he's in control of the clock. John adds a pretty cool little narrative detail here that I think we might be all tempted to pass over. John shows us that Jesus is in control of history, not just like in the general sense, but over like the actual hands on the clock, the hour hand, the minute hand, the second hand. At just the right time, Christ died. Look there at verses 12 and 13. Verse 12. From then on, Pilate sought to release him, but the Jews cried out, If you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. So when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judgment seat at a place called the Stone Pavement and an Aramaic Gabbatha. So think about this for a second. What was it about these words that pushed Pilate over the edge? Why does he finally yield right here? Even though it's clear he just wants to let Jesus go, what pushes him over? We've talked about it a little bit already. Political peer pressure. You're not Caesar's friend, they shouted. And I don't have time this morning to unpack why, but historically we know that Pilate was not on stable footing with Caesar right now in history. He was in a very vulnerable position. And so if word got out that Pilate let a threat to Caesar go free, even though Pilate was nearly certain that Jesus was no threat to Caesar, but if word got out that he had let this threat to Caesar go free and then something actually did happen, it just might be the last straw that cost Pilate his job or maybe even his life. And so the political threat sinks him and he begins to prepare Jesus for crucifixion right here on this judgment seat. Humanly speaking, isn't this crazy? Humanly speaking, political peer pressure is what finally killed Jesus. Peer pressure killed Jesus, and it kept an intrigued Pilate from in investigating his claims to be God, to be Savior. And so this morning, I'm not sure where you are on your journey with Jesus, but if you're waiting for a time when the tide of political pressure is going to lower, you're never going to come at all. If you tarry till you're better, you will never come at all. If you're a bit like Pilate today and you're waiting for the ideal time to investigate the resume of Jesus, I just want to help give you that extra nudge this morning. Don't wait this morning, friends. Come to Jesus. Well, Pilate sits on this judgment throne there in verse 14 and he shouts to the Jews, Behold, your king! Once again, Pilate still thinks it's a costume. He doesn't think Jesus is dangerous, but he certainly doesn't think that Jesus is king. But back up a sentence there, and here's where we see Jesus studying to exercise some sort of fine-tuned control over the situation and even over the clock. 
John provides a timestamp that is just jaw-dropping here. It may not be readily apparent, but this is dynamite. Look at verse 14. Now, it was the day of preparation of the Passover. It was about the sixth hour. Jesus shows here that despite appearances, he's already on the throne with the timing of this whole thing. Verse 14 tells us that this final rejection of Jesus took place at the sixth hour. So what's the big deal? Now, in Roman times, the clock started at 6 a.m., so the sixth hour would have actually been noon. And verse 14 also tells us that this was the day of preparation. Do you know what also happened on, at noon on the day of preparation? Well, just a few hundred yards where Jesus was standing, being prepared for slaughter, just a few hundred yards from there, right at noon, the priests were beginning to slaughter the Passover lambs in the temple in preparation for the upcoming feast. Now, quickly, if you're unfamiliar with the Jewish faith, especially the Old Testament sacrificial system, I won't give you all the details now, but in God's economy, sin deserved wrath and punishment. Just like in America's judicial system, crime is met with some form of punishment. But instead of punishing his people, God had another gracious plan. He allowed a picture of his wrath to be seen by killing lambs in the people's place. So shedding the animal's blood so that their, so that their blood didn't have to be shed. That was, the, that was the picture that is painted in the Old Testament. The Passover lamb was a substitute for God's people. The lamb stood in place of God's people, absorbing the wrath that they deserved. Well, right here in this scene with Pilate, the lamb of God, Jesus Christ, timed his sacrifice to coincide with the sacrifice of the Passover lambs. He was sentenced to death just as one of those little cute lambs stepped up in front of God's wrath to save his people in that very hour. It's wild. Christ was never more regal, never more kingly than at this moment. He was stepping up to be our substitute, absorbing the wrath that we deserve. Jesus didn't just control his costume, he controlled the clock. If you're still doubting the claims of Christ this morning, consider the unlikeliness that of all the hours of this year in history, this is the one that Jesus is condemned to die? The man who almost three years earlier, John, John the Baptist had called the Lamb of God. You remember that story way back in the beginning of the gospel. This man who was called the Lamb of God years before was about to be thrown on the altar of the cross to pay for the sins of his people as a substitute for his people. Jesus shows that he's in control of history. Even in history's darkest chapter, he's still in control. He's sovereign over the clock. He's sovereign over the clock of a tragedy, his being sovereign over the clock of a tragedy of this magnitude and his ability to be able to wield it for good should encourage us because he can do the same for us. If he can show his glory and accomplish his purposes when everything seems like defeat and disaster here in John 19, our history can be no different. If Jesus could transform this hour, he can transform any hour. Jesus is more in control than we even know, and we should all be profoundly thankful. Second, and very briefly this morning, Jesus' kingship is displayed through 
profound humility. A few minutes ago, we talked about the three different kinds of flogging uh, in Roman history. John doesn't detail this for us here, but Jesus would be flogged again after he's sentenced to crucifixion there in verse 16. And you might have guessed that Jesus is placed on the fast track to the most violent sort of flogging here. This one is called, called verberatio. Here's how one historian described verberatio. He said this, the delinquent was stripped, bound to a post or a pillar, or sometimes simply thrown on the ground, and beaten with a whip fitted with spikes, bone, and lead by a number of torturers until the latter grew tired and the flesh of the delinquent hung in bleeding shreds. These beatings were so savage that the victim sometimes died. Eyewitness records report that such brutal scourgings could leave victims with their bones and entrails exposed. Josephus records that he himself had some of his opponents scourged until their entrails were visible. Josephus is just a, a first century historian. David prophesied about this moment in Psalm 22. He prophesied that Jesus would say, I can count on my bones. They stare and they gloat over me. So while this is a, is a dreadful and chilling description of what Jesus was put through, I think it correctly portrays the dire condition Jesus is in as he is prepared to walk to Golgotha, to the place where he would finally be crucified. Is it any surprise then that Jesus didn't last very long on the cross? He was already well past half dead before he was even on the cross. The crowds, remember this is Passover. This is the most packed the city is all year. The crowds in town for Passover would have observed a stunning spectacle on Jesus' path to the cross. The red carpet of blood. Fit only for a glorious king. Can you see the profound humility of Jesus? He's already demonstrated that he's ahead of the game here. He's actively controlling the situation by seeking a redemptive death. He who knew no sin became sin. He came not to be served, but to serve. The king suffers for his peasants. His humility earned our freedom from the penalty of our sin. In conclusion here, what is, what is the explanation for why the father would allow such violence against his son? There can only be one explanation. This is actually the penalty that our sins incurred. This picture that we see of Jesus is what God thinks and feels about our sin. This is what is required to pay our debt of sin. Have you ever wondered kind of like just functionally, what God thinks about your lust or your laziness or your anger. Look at Jesus back after that whipping that he received. Jesus, in transcendent humility, stood in your place and in mine to receive the lashes that we deserved. Once again, so, once again though, here, there's an ironic twist. By his wounds... We are healed. Jesus is the only one in the universe who can use wounds to heal and to heal us to the uttermost. This was not cosmic child abuse from the Father to the Son. This was Jesus exerting fine-tuned control over the situation 
and willingly submitting to the Father by stepping up to be killed. You know, when Jesus allowed those crown of thorns to be placed upon his head, I imagine that his thoughts might have drifted back to the beginning of time, all the way back to Genesis as those crowns were being put on. Adam had just taken a bite of that fruit. And in that instant, the very first thorn would have sprouted from that first most beautiful rose bush in Eden. And here's what Genesis 3 says of that situation. And to Adam he said, Because you have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Because you've done this, cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Here it is. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. I think it was no mistake that Jesus was crowned with thorns. It was not just to induce pain on Jesus' head. It was to be a picture of what Jesus was absorbing for us. Jesus is still in control as that crown is placed upon his head, and he's subtly telling the whole world, I am here to reverse the curse. Those thorns that sprouted when sin first entered the world were one day shrink back to their rightful place as sin is fully and finally defeated. And along with the thorns, all the pain that you experience now, friend, all the tears, all the blood that has been wrought by the thorns in your life, of mine, and of every human ever, Jesus took those thorns on that day to re reverse their effect for all of his people. Jesus was crowned with thorns that we might be crowned with life. Now there's another costume that the scriptures talk about. The theological term for this costume is called imputation, but basically it means this. By faith, we get to put on the Jesus costume, free from guilt, shame, and the penalty of our sin, not stained even a little bit, and in turn, Jesus puts on the Josh costume. It's not really a fair deal or a good deal for Jesus. My costume is filled with guilt and shame and inexhaustible amount of sin. But Jesus suffers for my costume on the cross, and I get life for his costume for all of eternity. So as you look ahead to this Halloween week, consider what costume does God see you wearing this morning? Are you wearing Jesus' perfect righteousness by faith? Or are you still clothed in your own sins? If you're wearing Jesus's, you've got one legit response. Jesus, thank you. If you're not wearing Jesus's, you've got one legit response. Jesus, save me. And he will. If you've got questions about that, let's talk. I would love to speak with you. Praise Jesus that his kingly costume was no costume. That his power wasn't limited by Pilate, but exerted over Pilate, even though Pilate didn't know. And praise Jesus that he absorbed the wounds of the cross, that we might be healed with the grace of the cross. Will you pray with me? Jesus, thank you. Your blood has washed away our sin. Jesus, thank you. The Father's wrath 
completely satisfied. Jesus, thank you. All of us in here, once your enemies, but now seated at your table. Jesus, thank you. Amen.